Thank you, Miss Lori. Please stand with me as we read God's Word for us today. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 36 today. 22 through 36. A large section with a lot there. But again, as we read this, the preeminent point of the whole book of Matthew, and thus the preeminent point of our text here today, is who is Jesus Christ? Have that in your mind as we read. Notice, immediately, He, that is Jesus, notice, made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowds. And after He had dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. When evening came, He was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered Him, Lord, if it is You, command me to come out to You on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked out on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you, little, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those, who in, those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Him, they sent all around that region and brought to Him all who were sick, and implored Him that they might only touch the fringe of His garment, and as many who touched it were made well. Please pray with me. Lord, we come before You with a massive amount of text, extremely important things to consider. I pray that You would preach, God, and not me. I pray that You would would help us, God, to see the point of the text, that Jesus would be highly exalted and that Your people would trust Him in a greater way or be reminded that they ought to trust Him in a greater way today. God, this is impossible, just as impossible as Peter walking on the water today. And I pray that You would do it. I pray that my mind and our mind would be stayed on You as we hear this sermon today. Please bless and be with us in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the first things in our Christian experience, or pre-Christian experience even, that we realize is that when we look at ourselves and who we are and who God is in His person, that we need a mediator. We need a mediator. Now, mediator isn't a word that we use, maybe except for in a corporate setting. We think of a, a lawyer mediating between two different parties, perhaps when two corporations would merge together. Or perhaps if you work in a union job, you have a, um, whatever they're called, a representative, a rep, that would rep you to the larger corporation and present you. Now, Jesus Christ in our text, I want us to see today, is represented as a great mediator. And notice with me, before we look at the individual sections of this text, how many times the character and the nature of Jesus is brought up in this text. We see first, and most preeminently, in verse 27, 
that Jesus spoke to them saying, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus is pointing to Himself. And as we will consider, Jesus is saying something far more than I am the Jesus, the man that you know. He is claiming, I believe, to be Yahweh. Notice the disciples in response to this say in verse 33, truly, truly, you are the Son of God. And in verse 34, the people of Gennesaret, they recognize Jesus. They recognize Him not just as the neighbor that lives down the street or lives in another part of the country. They recognize Him as the healer and the Savior who is willing and able to do the things that He was called to do. And so, in our text today, to help us to frame it, I would say that Jesus is shown to be a perfect mediator in His prayer that He makes for His people. In the power that He shows over the forces of nature and in His compassion towards doubters and sinners. And how I framed this little sermon together was helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you. We have three imperatives, commands, that come to us as an implication from this text. First, we are to trust our praying priest. We are to trust our powerful king, and we are to trust our compassionate prophet. Um, So, using those as general headers... I want us to notice first that we are commanded in this text by implication to trust our praying priest. And we see this in verses 22 through 24 of our text that immediately after these crowds had come, had been fed, that Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat to go to the other side while he goes up into a mountain all night to pray. Now, The first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus praying and His prioritizing of prayer sets Him apart from the physical presence that He has with His disciples. Now, Jesus does this for a number of reasons. You might remember in the context that Jesus and His disciples are looking to escape. The crowds have become so intense with Jesus' popularity that Mark tells us that they didn't even have space of time to eat. You might notice as well in context that Herod had recently beheaded John the Baptist. So both out of mourning for the loss of a great godly friend and for fear of persecution, or rather the reality of persecution, they flee to a desert place. And the crowds follow them. They're not able to find rest. But notice that Jesus takes time to find rest here. He goes into a mountain by himself to pray. Now, I want us to see that Jesus is not ashamed of his priority that he has in prayer here. He's not ashamed of it. He's not thinking that, what are people going to think of me if I take time to do this? Rather, Jesus takes time to go to his Father in private prayer. Now, this isn't just in this text, though. I want us to see that this is Jesus' habit throughout his whole life. And I just want us to turn to a couple of texts because this is throughout the Gospels. First in Mark chapter 1. (coughs) Excuse me, Mark chapter 1. As we think about Jesus going into the mountain to pray, I want us to see it was the habit of Jesus throughout His whole life to take time even when it scandalized Him to His disciples. We see this in Mark chapter 1 at the beginning of His ministry in verses 32 through 34. Notice, (coughs) that evening... 
At sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Imagine that with me. In this town, this time, probably a thousand people gathered together at the doorfront of one person's house, and they want to see Jesus. They want him to lay their hands on them. They want him to pray for them. And he healed them, in verse 34, who were sick with many various diseases and cast out many demons, and they would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. But notice verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. But not just the beginning of his ministry... The end of his ministry is also marked by private prayer. And we might just be able to remember this in our minds. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you might remember, he didn't go to a totally desolate place, but Jesus withdrew from his disciples and knelt down there and prayed three times that he would not have to endure the wrath of the Father on the cross. But Luke 5.15, I think, summarizes it very perfectly for us. Where Luke says, but now even more of the report went about him abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And verse 16 says this, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That is throughout Jesus Christ's ministry, one of the things that marked him as a mediator, as God sent prophet, was that he would withdraw often to desolate places to pray to pray. He had the habit and was devoted to seeking God in private prayer for himself to renew himself and refresh himself in the ministry and also for his people. But I want us to notice that in our text, it seems to cause a problem, doesn't it? It is because Jesus has a, prior, a priority in prayer that his disciples are alone in this boat, in the middle of the sea, with the waves literally in the Greek torturing the boat. Now, I've made much of this as in my emphasis in reading. Notice that Jesus made them. This is a very, very strong word that is often translated in the New Testament as forced or compelled somebody to. Jesus is not suggesting to his disciples, please get on the boat if you really want to and go away. I'd like to spend some time in prayer. He makes them get on the boat. Jesus has such a priority in prayer that he forces his disciples to get on this boat so that he can go into a mountain to pray by himself. Now, the second thing I want to notice about Jesus' priority in prayer here is the amount of time that Jesus spends in prayer. Now, you might notice that in verse 23, it says, when evening came, he was there alone. Now, this was probably about 6 p.m. in Jewish time. But what time does Jesus come to his disciples on the sea? In the fourth watch of the night. This is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So, Jesus has spent perhaps eight to ten hours in prayer on this mountain when he finally gets up and goes to his disciples. And it's these two things, Christ making his disciples get into the boat so he could pray, and also such an extended time that if we just surface level read this text, we'd say, well, Jesus' priority in prayer is actually causing a problem for his people. Wouldn't it be better if he was with them in the boat in this 
situation. Prayer is so important to our Savior that He leaves His disciples in a perilous situation. Now, if I was on that boat, I know I would be tempted to think, Jesus, I wish that you could only be here. Even if back in Matthew chapter 8, even if you were asleep on the boat, at least I could look over and see that you're physically present with us. But here, you seem absent. And how often we can do that, don't we? God, if you would just show me physically in some visible way that you are with me, then I would have comfort right now. I wouldn't be so worried about these waves coming into the boat. But I would tell you that that reveals our lack of faith and our tendency to walk by what our eyes see and not by what the promises of the Bible tell us. It is here that we come to grips with the importance of us having a praying mediator. And I would tell you, it was better for these disciples that their Savior stayed on the mountain and prayed than He didn't pray and was physically with them at this time. Now, Jesus, on this mountain, we have to first realize that He is not just praying for Himself to be refreshed physically or even individually, spiritually in the Lord. Jesus Christ always prays for the good and benefit of His people. And that's where we come to the idea that Jesus Christ is our mediator here today because He is our praying priest. Now, when we think of a priest, what are the two duties that a priest has in his office? Well, historically, it's been given that a priest has the duty of oblation, that is, the killing of a sacrifice, and intercession, that is, going to God and praying. And that's how Christ mediates for us. He lays down His own life on the cross as our oblation, taking our sins upon His shoulders and dying the death we deserve to die, but also intercession. That right now in heaven, Jesus Christ is praying for us so that the benefits that He purchased on the cross will be given to us in time, in space, history. Everything that we have in salvation is because of Jesus Christ and His prayers for us. Now, as we think about these disciples on the lake, and we think about Him interceding so that we would partake of His benefits, this should have encouraged the disciples. As they thought, our Savior made us get into this boat. We believe He is who He said He is. And He is up there praying for us. I would say that they ought to have sat in that boat and said, I know that God hears my Savior's prayers. He is the one sent, the Lamb of God sent to us. And I have confidence that God is hearing His prayers. God is the master of this lake. And He hears the prayers of our Savior. It should have been encouraging for the disciples, even in the moment of this text. But, as we've already mentioned, this idea is not just for the apostles on the lake in this very moment. Rather, it is absolutely true right now. Even though Jesus Christ is absent in His bodily presence from us in this assembly today, and every trial that we're going through, we probably don't see the physical Jesus presented before our eyes as a comfort to us, we ought to realize that our Savior, not on a mountain, but in heaven, is continually interceding and praying for His people. The two key texts to show you that are in Romans chapter 8, 
in verse 34. And I ask you to turn there with me to see this. As you're turning there, just a reminder. As we think about Christ praying in this text, I believe that the imperative that is given to our soul is that we would trust our Savior primarily because He is a praying Savior. Notice, the question is asked by Paul in verse 34 of Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And notice those two duties of the priest mentioned in that text. He has died for us, and he is praying for us. Secondly, Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 25, speaking about Christ interceding now for his people. Hebrews 7:25 says this: Consequently, He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He he always lives to make intercession for them. Our Savior was just as interested in the disciples continuing in their faith and surviving that journey on the sea as they were. And they should have been encouraged, and so should we today. Our Savior's prayers and the promise in the Scripture of our Savior's prayer should comfort us greatly when we are going through trials. He is our perfect priest that has the ear of God for us. But more than that, He's our conquering King. Now, as we look at verses 25 through 29, we get in kind of the meat of the text here. The central focus of what we are called to see. And I would have us to notice that Jesus walking on the water displays His dominion and His power even over the most chaotic elements of nature. Now, I struggled where to put this in the sermon, but I want us to take notice about the timing of Jesus. He comes out in this passage to help His disciples walking on the water to be with them. But notice, again, he comes in the fourth watch of the night. They struggled long in this boat. As I've mentioned, being tortured by the waves, being beaten by the wind. And Jesus chooses to come long time after those trials started. We ought to be encouraged by that today. I know that we want him to come now, in this very moment, and do exactly what we want him to do. But Jesus often waits And causes us to wait so that we would trust in Him more. To test our faith. He comes 8-10 to hours later. And this is a good thing because if He would have come immediately, I don't know that the disciples would have trusted Him to the degree that they should have. Now, as we think about Jesus walking on the water here. This shows Jesus' dominion. And I I think that that's very natural for us, isn't it? As we read through this text and we think about Jesus walking on the water, the first thing that comes in our mind is Jesus is shown to be God in this text because He has dominion even over the water. There's nothing more impossible maybe physically than we could think of except for perhaps flying through the air than us going and walking on water. Something no human being can do 
but to the ancient Jewish mind and the ancient mind in general, walking on the sea is even deeper than that. The sea itself was known to be the scariest part of creation by the ancient mind, right? It was representing chaos, representing death, representing everything that's unknown in this world. That's why some of the sea monsters represented in the Bible, that Satan is represented as Leviathan, a great sea monster. It's a terrifying thing to think of to the ancient world. If you went in the water, there's no Coast Guard that's going to come save you. No helicopter is going to come overboard. You are done for. And this was a symbol, Jesus walking on the water, of everything that was unknowable and untamable. Jesus is saying, I have sovereign rule and power over this. This was an ultimate show of Jesus Christ's authority. But I think that there's something a lot more here. What should really grab us by the collar and cause us to think about what this text means is when Jesus tells them in verse 27, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I would tell you today, I think that when Jesus said this in Greek, and when Matthew wrote it in Greek, that the hair on the back of every Jewish neck would have stood up. Because what Jesus says here is, it is I. He says, ego, a me. Which is the exact same phrase that is spoken in the burning bush in Exodus chapter Three, when God said, when Moses asked, who should I say that the people that you are? He says, say that I am has sent you. I am that I am. And when Jesus comes out on the water here, he is proclaiming not just that he's a man that's been given authority. He's claiming that he is Yahweh himself, the creator and the governor of all space and time. I am here with you. I think in combination With a lot of Old Testament texts, this even stands out further in our minds. Notice what the Bible says about God saving through water. Well, we know that in Exodus chapter 15, that God brings His people through the water. He comes and saves them from the water. But I think an even clearer picture in Psalm 77 Talking about Yahweh, it says in verse 16, when the, when the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. And in verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. But I think even stronger, in Isaiah 53, or 43, that Joey read today, that this Yahweh... He not only goes through the sea, but He commands us when we're going through the waters to fear not. Notice what is said in verses 1 and 2 and how it correlates with our text today. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Exactly what Jesus Christ says in our text. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by My name. You are Mine. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And again in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. I really believe with all my soul studying this text today, when Jesus came to that boat and says, Do not be afraid, it is I. 
that what would have come primarily into the Jewish mind was Isaiah chapter 43. That he comes on the waters, he makes a path in the waters, and he tells us, do not be afraid as we are going through them. And listen, we need to strengthen ourselves in this fact. Our mediator and king is the same one who brought Israel through the Red Sea. And all things, no matter how terrible, no matter how chaotic, all things serve Jesus. He is our God and He comes to us when we need Him. No trial or circumstance is too severe to keep Jesus Christ from His people. He will walk even through the waves of the storm. Things that are impossible in order to come to His people and save them. This text is meant to encourage us in this reality. What storms are you going through? And I know that that's cliche in this text, but it's true. What storms are you going through right now that you are, you're tempted to doubt and to fear? Know that Christ is sovereign over those things. He prays for you, yes, but He is also has complete control and authority over them. Now, His power though, is not only displayed in Himself walking on the water, I would argue today that His power is further and greater displayed in giving power to Peter to walk on the water. It's one thing for God to say, I make a path through the sea and I can walk on the waters. It's another thing for Him to say, you come and I'll make you do the same thing. But this is what happens. Peter walking on water is a display of God's power to us. Now in context, think with me what comes just before this text. We have Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000, don't we? And what does He command His disciples to do but what is impossible? You have a few loaves and a few fish. Bring them to Me and we'll feed the 5,000. And the call there was to trust Jesus Christ, to obey Him, believing that He gives the power in the moment of obedience. And the same thing is true in this text. Peter, notice his language. He says, command me. Command me to come out on the water. Peter is not so foolhardy as to think that just because it's his Savior, he can do the same things as him. He needs a command from his God (coughs) to come out on the water. He asks us to do the impossible and empowers us to do it. Peter asks Jesus to command him to do it. He believes him. And Peter, notice, he goes all the way to Jesus. Now, we don't know how far Jesus was away from the boat in this particular scenario, but he walks all the way out to his Savior on the water. But as soon as he recognizes the wind and the waves, he starts to sink. And the question we need to ask is what changed about Peter's situation when he began to sink? Did Jesus change? Did he stop having power over the water? We say, no, of course not. Well, did the waves change? Did the wind change? It's certainly not recorded in our text. What changed is that Peter had taken his eyes off of his Savior and off the promise that Jesus was going to help preserve him on the water and started to see that the waves and the wind were more of a concrete reality than the promise of Jesus Christ Himself. And that's what we do, isn't it? We look at our lives and we say, by sight... It looks like this is an impossible situation. But we forget that the commands and promises of God are just as true, more true, than the things that we see with our earthly eyes. Now, we will never be commanded, 
And I'll say that boldly, I think. I don't think we'll ever be commanded to walk on the water by Jesus. Okay? But I would tell you today, the thing that struck my heart this week is that we are commanded to do much harder and more impossible things in the Christian life than to walk on water. For me, anyway. I have a greater time believing that I could walk on water in my natural ability than I could be content in all circumstances. It's harder for me to think that I can love my neighbor as myself and love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength than it is for me to walk on water. If I had a choice between the two and it was up to me, I'd say I'm going to try to walk on water first. It's true, isn't it? It's true. We are commanded to do impossible things in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. He tells us, come, do what I did. Be content in all circumstances. And we're called to go after him. We're called to go after him. But the text that we have in front of us is don't take our eyes off the promises of God while you're doing it. Don't look at the circumstances and interpret that those are more real than God's promises. Rather, we have to always consistently be reminding ourselves that what God promises is true. Is that not the definition of faith that we have in Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11 says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a conviction that these are concrete realities that are unmovable even though I cannot see them with my earthly eyes. This is what Peter's problem was in this moment. If we're in the way of duty, J.C. Ryle said reading this week, if we're in the way of duty, going out and doing what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do, do not take your eyes off Christ, and we are promised that we will accomplish what Jesus Christ sent us to accomplish. I don't think I'd go further than that, but I'd certainly go that far. Now, when we look at this, Jesus coming out in the water, the disciples being afraid, Peter called to come and starting to sink. What are we taught by it? We are taught to be obedient looking to Christ. All of our consistent failures because we take our eyes off of Him and refuse to believe His promises. We ought to be comforted in the midst of our trials and strengthened to all obedience Because our mediator is a powerful king. He rules over the waves. He rules over my heart. He gives commands that not even nature can say these things won't be true. But, lastly, our text also reveals his prophetic ministry. (coughs) This is taken from these short three verses at the end. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around that region and brought to him who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Now, there's some overlap here. When I say that we trust our compassionate prophet here, uh, I'm using it loosely. It was helpful for my outline, to be honest with you. But it's true. Jesus Christ, what a prophet does is reveal God to the people. Right? And Jesus Christ does this not by preaching in our text, but through his compassionate ministry. By showing compassion, being the image of the invisible God, he is telling us who God is. God is compassionate. First, he's compassionate to doubting Peter in verses 30 through 33. Christ is compassionate. He reveals the compassionate God to doubting 
Peter. Now, Jesus, being the God of all things and saying, trust me, come out on the water. And Peter doesn't trust. Takes his eyes off of him. It would have been perfectly righteous of Jesus Christ to let Peter sink in those waters for not trusting him. You know that we are commanded by the fact that we are created by God. It is a moral imperative on every soul that lives that we have to trust him. And disobeying this command is just as much sin as anything else. Peter could have sank here. But we notice that Jesus rebukes Peter, but he does it so gently, doesn't he? Peter says, Lord, save me. And what does the text say? Immediately, right? Immediately. He doesn't even let Peter start sinking and say, I'm just going to let him feel it a little bit, right? That would be the temptation. Yeah, I'm going to let him feel a little bit. Get a little worried. But no, immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and takes him. And notice what he says so gently. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How often that verse speaks to my own soul. You have little faith. Not you have no faith, right? He's not saying, Peter, you're a total unbeliever. Why'd you doubt? Why did you doubt here? He pulls him up from his error. And I tell you, this is good news for doubters like me. And doubters probably like you. When we fail, when we're on the winds of God's obedience, and we look to the circumstance, we begin to sink, not to trust. I don't know how many times... I try to step into this pulpit and I say, God, I'm not feeling spiritual right now. This is impossible. My mind's not working as it ought to work. Or in a counseling situation, this is too difficult for me to fix. How often we look at the circumstances and begin to sink. But I would tell you, do what Peter does. If you believe in Christ, look to him and say, Lord, save me. Forgive me for my doubts. He will save us and pull us up. He has compassion on us. And that's what's revealed in this text. He is our mediator because he shows us that God has compassion on sinners. If you're in sin today as a Christian, look to Christ. Repent. He has compassion. But he he not only has compassion on doubters like Peter, he has compassion on ruined sinners. Ruined sinners. And this is the symbolism that's always brought with Jesus healing a body. These are people that are broken physically and it represents the spiritual brokenness that every one of us has. And we see that Jesus Christ reveals God the Father by being compassionate to how many of these people that were brought to Him. Not most. Not some. But every person that was brought to Jesus Christ, He had compassion. He healed all of them. And it's even further emphasized that as many as would just touch the hem of his garment. Right? What a helpful image for us. For people convicted of their sin, it's often the case, how could I go to him and ask him to forgive me? How dare I go into his presence? Well, if that's your feeling, I understand what you're saying. But if you would say in your heart, if I could even touch the hem of his garment... Touch the hem of his garment. That's how faith in Christ works here. It's not a great faith that you need to be saved in Jesus Christ, but it is a faith that trusts in him. That if I go to him, he is able to heal me. He is willing to save all who come to him. And he is able to save all that come to him. What better news is that? 
What better news is that? And if you're here today, I look around the room, I don't know anybody that doesn't have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're here today and you say, I'm a ruined sinner. I'm broken. I have no hope. He heals everyone that comes to Him. Everyone that comes to Him. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, no no matter how many times you've done or thought it, Jesus heals all who come to Him. And so, in conclusion today, as we think about Jesus walking on the water and finally going on the other side, I believe that what we have revealed here is that Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator between God and man. He is a perfect priest who has laid down His life for us, but more than that, He prays that all of those benefits that He purchased will be applied to us in this life and the next. He is a perfect, perfect King who rules over all of our circumstances, all of our enemies, over our own hearts, and will subject all things to Himself on the final day. And He is a perfect prophet who shows us exactly who God the Father is. We doubt who God is and what His heart is toward us. We look to Jesus Christ in this text and see that He is abundantly compassionate to doubters and sinners. And we're reminded of Christ's ministry in all these ways as we look to the Lord's table as well. So we look to the Lord's table today. We see a physical picture of Christ's body broken. We see a physical picture of His blood shed. And I think we should pay careful attention to these next words, for us. For us. 